Hello and welcome to the China Business Brief, a new podcast from the China Britain Business Council, where we explain the latest news relevant to anyone working in or with the world's second largest economy. I'm Joe Cash. Joining me this week is Scott Rosell, a leading scholar on the economics of poverty and inequality at Stanford University. Scott recently published a new book titled Invisible China that looks to shine a light on the widening gap between rural and urban areas in terms of prosperity, wealth, and education, and explain how, unless action is taken, China might find itself with some 200 million people who are structurally unemployable as a result. Scott is a senior fellow at the Freeman Spoley Institute for International Studies, and he holds a professorship at Stanford University. Scott also directs the Rural Education Action Plan and is a fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the China Business Brief. I've spent the last week reading your book and it's a great read. It covers so many interesting topics and goes into many different policy areas. I suppose my first question is, perhaps you could explain the premise of your book how you carried out your research and, and why you're publishing it now. Thanks, Joseph. It's, it's a pr- uh, privilege really to be here. Um, I'll try to keep that short. That's a big question because I, uh, if I covered each year of the 38 years I've been working in China. And so I, I'm interested in poverty, uh, interested in poverty alleviation. And the, the quick story is, is, you know, for 25 years, I worked on agriculture and it was giving farmers better incentives, giving them fertilizer, giving them market access, and then letting them move off the farm. You know, that's where we saw three, 400 million Chinese rise out of poverty, right? We were working with the government in the mid-2000s, and uh, we were doing a, a new survey from the Ministry of Agriculture that said, what else do rural people want? This is in 2005, the, the one job out regime. What else do, 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 do Chinese farmers want? And they had a whole bunch of, of things. They had just built roads to every village, and, but there was irrigation and drinking water. And then at the bottom of the, at bottom of the survey, it said, it says, please, is there another thing you'd like, please explain. And we went to 20,000 farmers all across the country and they never fill that out. Half of them said, we want everything in that list, of course, <laughs> right? You know, who doesn't want new irrigation? But they said, the main thing we want is rural education. Because if I can educate my kid, you know, our family is going to be, you know, not only out of poverty, we're going to be, you know, you know, we have a huge future in front of us. It really started getting me thinking. And so that and then I started studying it about what the nature of China's rural education is. And, you know, I think I, I talk in the book, I won't go into the details, but looking, if you use China's own census data, you compare China to all other middle income countries in the world, China is number one low in terms of level of education for its entire labor force from 25 to 65. They are the least educated country in the middle income world. 70% of kids have never gone past junior high. That means five 500 million people in this labor force that's soon going to become high skill, high income. That's what I'm worried about. First, I should say it's a really excellent book and I really enjoyed reading it. And I definitely recommend to any of our listeners out there. It takes you through some interesting discussions beyond how other countries have escaped the middle income trap, how China is being held back with regards to children's development from a physiological perspective, from a policy perspective. One of the 
points that you make in your book, which is a stark contrast to many of the other predictions for China's future that we're reading, is that unlike some of the other countries around it that have escaped the middle income trap, Taiwan, South Korea, by managing to harness its rural force, provide them with an education and move into, say, chip manufacture and high-tech industries. China's future might be more similar to that of Mexico or, say, Venezuela, uh, where you have a disenfranchised group, particularly of unemployed men who do not have sufficient education to go into these areas and leading to a future where there is cartel and organized crime. Could you explain uh, that prediction to us? Yeah, um, so... Uh, I'm a development economist. Uh, you know, I, I've for 35 years, I've sat in the village and collected data and, and analyze it. So uh, that's a sort of the political economy downstream impacts of this. And that's certainly one of the potential, uh, you know, outcomes, but it's like this, right? I mean, let, let me tell you the results of a survey we did in a, in a company that we, we were working with. It was a big company that made electronic product. They wanted, the, the company wanted us to go in and survey and find out what the workers in there were thinking about in life. And if they could offer them like some training to help them in the future, they wanted to keep them in the firm, right? To keep from turning over. So, so we went in and we got about, it was about 15,000 workers and we gave them a survey and said, where are you going to be 10 years from now? This was in 2016, 2017. And guess what? 1% said, I'm going to go back to the farm. 99% said, I don't even know how to farm. Okay. So these guys aren't going to go back to the farm. 10% said, Hey, I think I'll still be on the factory floor. Only 10%. 7% said, I, I hope I'm a goody who I hope I'm a self-employed worker working for myself. You know, because I don't want to be in the factory floor, you know, and, and I want to, you know, I'll either, you know, have a little store or I'll do some repair shops or something like that. Right. Oh, and, and because of that, you know, guess what we did is we gave we gave them a training program, said, oh, if you want to be that, then you'd really like to do some business. So, so we started some in after work training program in like business law, accounting, et cetera. And these were a hundred classes of 40 each. Okay. Guess what? After three weeks, it was down to 300. After six weeks, it was a 10-week course, almost no one because they could barely read, they could barely write. They they couldn't, you know, they couldn't grasp these concepts. Okay, guess what the other one percent of the people said? Only one percent of these workers in these factories said, I can take a job that's going to be the dominant job in a high-income economy, right? And all the rest, nobody else can do that. And so this really started to, 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 to get me, you know, concerned. And so you have these people who are trying to move into, as you write in your book, the informal economy, but they don't have the skills to do that. They will become increasingly disillusioned. The China dream of, you know, we've been brought out of poverty, we're rising towards becoming, you know, this great resurgent power again. The economic development is not going to be there and then these people's dreams will be crushed because there just aren't enough you write in your book how there are only so many kind of noodle stores you need on the street you can't have everybody moving from the shop floor from the factory floor you know to, to selling noodles to washing windows on the street yeah, yeah you don't in, yeah in, in a high income high skill economy you, you know you don't need 60 percent of your labor force 
you know, in the informal economy. And if you do, you turn into, you know, a Brazil or an Argentina or Indonesia, where that part of the labor force actually anchors down and weighs down the formal part. And, you know, it hurts the, the formal part of the labor force. It's really interesting is if you look at Chinese national statistics, okay, this isn't our statistics. This is this is from the, the State Statistical Bureau. The fastest growing part of China's employed labor force is the unskilled service sector. And, and it's the informal sector. So these guys don't belong to a unit. You know, they don't have hourly pay. They don't have very good uh, uh, social services, shabao, right? They're part of this informal economy. And um, Li Keqiang actually knows Knows that he's worried about this. I don't know if you remember last August, Li Keqiang said, there's 500 million people that live on 1,000 yen a month and lower, right? And he called them the Tan Fan Jingji. He called them the, the farmer's market employees. And that's who I'm worried about. It's exactly what you said, is once their wages, if their wages start to fall and they lose hope in the future, the question is, what do these guys do? But when I talk to British businesses here, they see this China that is going to become a leading economy. You ask them, where does China rank in your global priorities? And they say, well, if it's not our largest single country market, it, it soon will be. And they are projecting a China market, which is similar to you know, Japan. So Shanghai is an equivalent of Tokyo. And how likely do you think that they may be disappointed and find that actually the China market is more, as you described, in, in a, a Thailand, an Indonesia, a South Africa, or perhaps even a Mexico, Venezuela? So um, there's, a, there's a, re a great paper out. Uh, <laughs> it's not mine. <laughs> it's by uh, Li Shur, he's a professor, used to be at Beijing Normal University, he's now in Zhejiang University. His collaborators are in Sweden and in Canada. And uh, using national data from State Statistical Bureau, they, 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 they wrote a paper called The Rise of the Middle Class. And sure enough, the middle class in China, there's almost 400 to 450 middle, middle class people. And that's who, you, you know, your businessmen and, you know, the, the businessmen around the world are eyeing. But wait a minute, China has an, uh, China has 1.4 billion people in it. There's 950, there's nobody poor in China anymore, but there's 950 low-income people. That's who I worry about. And they're the low-income people with low education. And are they going to be able to move up and participate in this? So how likely is it? So I, what I often tell people is, when I was in grad school, the place China is right now, China's made it, they're going to be the biggest economy. That was Mexico. And Mexico was admitted to OECD and because they were a high income economy. And then guess what? The wages continued to rise in Mexico over the next few years. The businesses moved out. They didn't automate very much then because there wasn't the automation, the robots there are now, but they automated, they moved out. And 20, 30% of its labor force became unemployed. And those 30%, 10% of them went to America. You know, guess what? If this happens in China, they can't go to America. They went into the informal Tan Fan Jinji. They went into the informal economy and then they went into organized crime. That's where Mexico went from a safest country in the world to one of the most violent countries in the world. All this. Now, the question is what you asked me is absolutely key. Is this really going to happen in China? So what I say is, you know, I'm trying to think through, you know, what might be some dangers in the coming stages. China hasn't made it yet. I want them to make it, but 
They haven't. So my, so I have an answer. Read my book and then say, what's the probability that this might happen? And you know, uh, I think that there's a significant probability. That's an economist way of saying I don't want to put a number on it. <laughs> but twenty percent, a ten percent, a five. There's only a five percent probability that what Scott's talking about might come true. Well, what I turn around and say is, then what you should do. I mean, because if this happens, it's not only going to hurt China and hurt. The, 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 you know, hundreds of million people, it's going to hurt the world. So I think China should buy insurance for that. Okay. So, I mean, I mean, so even if there's only a 5% probability, I think it's higher than that. One of the things that struck me reading your book is it sounds like the Chinese government is also taking steps, not, not deliberately to exacerbate this issue, but for example, a couple of years ago, I read that President Xi, he wants to see, um, you know, automation across more factories by 2025. Um, you also know in your book that President Xi no longer wants think tanks and government departments to refer to the middle income trap. But how are officials supposed to act to ensure that issues such as, again, taking this from your book, the fact that China has a high school attainment rate of just 30%, while no other country has ever escaped the middle income trap with a high school attainment rate of under 50%. This is a country where, as we all know, the top-down direction is really important. The top-down direction at the moment seems to be a mixture of, on the one hand, poverty alleviation campaigns, but on the other hand, a move to using robotics in, in manufacturing. How, how is this likely to play out, do you think? Yeah, I mean, this makes the, you know, this makes the current time period is exactly what we said. We not only have globalization, so we have Samsung moving to Vietnam, right? We have, you know, Levi's being made in Ethiopia now. And, uh, uh, but now we have automation on top of that. So I think that this sort of, you know, makes the problem potentially even worse and can come on. On the other hand, I, I do want to say, I get asked a question, is, is this a secret from the Chinese government? So I, I think the answer is no. And if you look at it, you see over the last 15 years that China has really accelerated sending kids to high school. And from in 2005, I'm not talking about the whole labor force now, but just 15 to 17 year olds, there's only 50% of them that were in high school in 2005. And by 2015, there was 89%, right? So they sent all these kids. So, so I think that they suddenly said, hey, man, we need to get these guys educated. So I think that they know that. I don't think that they know the depth of the problem. And that's what the rest of the book is about. These kids, you know, are going to, when they enter high school, can they learn, right? And we need to start addressing these problems when there's zero to three, number one. Number two, the 15 to 17 year olds, or the, the kids that are in elementary school now, they aren't going to be in the labor force 2030. What about the 500 million people who don't have a high school education that are already in the labor force? What do we do with them? But you, are, you ask a good question. Are these kids going to be able to learn? And there's a very emotional section in the book where you talk about how, I can't remember the statistic off the top of my head, but a large number of children in rural areas are going to school with intestinal worms, um, with uncorrected myopia many do not um, manage to attain an IQ beyond, I think it's 90, which you also then write is the same level as a special needs child in the US education system. Um, what are some of these kind of structural issues in the rural areas that are preventing children from attaining the education necessary to go into the jobs that will drive China out of the middle income trap? 
Yeah, well, you know, and I think these are the if there's two structural problems that haven't been addressed that really need to be addressed, it's it's what you just raised. And I'm going to do them backwards. Is first of all, the world has discovered, or at least economists have discovered, something called babynomics, right? Exactly, that it's really worth it to inter, to invest in babies. Because you know the the Chinese have a saying: at three you see the future. Sun sui kan lao. It's and we know that that's neurology, right? Is your cognition, your cognitive development. People don't like to use the word IQ, but your IQ is mostly set by the time you're three. And then on top of that, then you have lots of things that happen after three. But you know it's that skills begat skills, right? Um, you know, and there's almost no intervention in the cognitive development side of it. And believe me, the rest of the middle income world is investing huge amounts into zero to three. And, you know, China still is, you know, a little like the U.S. where, you know, that's a family matter, right? Well, the fact is, is these families really love their kids. We have a survey that says 20,000 moms with their babies in their hands at six months want their kid to go to college, but 80% of them drop out by the time they're 13. China, like the rest of the world, needs to start doing parental training and psychostimulation. Two is they have to start centrally funding these schools in rural China. Rural China schools are funded by local fiscal funds and poor counties have poor schools. They need to be fully funded by above. One of the other points you talk about in the book about funding and steps to improve the education provision is this vocational area where you know, we're also aware that after the young way, there's been a heightened focus on directing down you know, more funding, better resource for vocational training. And a number of UK companies in the educational space have indicated to the Chinese government that they want to make inroads in this area to collaborate with local government. But it strikes me, again, based on reading your book, that there are key structural issues there that are preventing the delivery of high quality vocational training. So how likely do you think it is that UK American education providers can work with local authorities to improve the situation of 13 year olds who, you know, are struggling to afford to go to high school, but, you know, see vocational training as a good um, alternative, but then just disillusioned. I'm thinking about the story of Wong Tao. Yeah, so... um... I have nothing. So I told you they had this huge rise of educational attainment over the last 15 years that they've added 10 million new slots. Okay. I mean, that's like bigger than many of those countries that made it, you know, that the got out of the middle income trap. Just 10 million new students are going to high school. Most of those are going to vocational school. Okay. And now, you know, this huge expansion, you know, I, I would say there's no problem with sending them to vocational school and the quality, maybe you should expect poor quality because you've expanded so fast quantity, you know, but now they're there now. I mean, I, I think that they really need to invest in the quality, but I think what people don't understand is they hear vocational school and what they think is we need to teach those kids how to repair a telephone, you know, no, you don't. <laughs> okay. That's not, you don't want a kid that knows one skill to go into an economy like China that's changing so fast. And because in a high income, high skill economy, the most important skill you have is to learn how to learn. You know how to learn new skills because Chinese vocational schools put 20% of their effort on math, uh, Chinese, science, computers, and 80% of it needs to be the opposite. 
they need vocational skills need to be math, 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 science, 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 computers, computers, computers. That's what they should be teaching them. Oh yeah, and a little bit of vocational skills. If they get into college, the vocational colleges then go focus, right? But they need to have those skills. And that's what, that's what these Chinese schools aren't doing. And I don't see anything in the discussion that's trying to focus on that. So I think that there's the problem. China wants to create to correct this problem. They need to go visit vocational schools in Germany and look at their curriculum because you know they the great vocational system in Germany, guess what? 80% academics, 20%. But China is a country, I think when business people you know think about it, it's premonition of China is a country that's very strong on maths, 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 science, science, science. Why is it not trickling down to these rural areas? Well, it's 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 really because not only this zero to three problem, but when kids get into school, I like to say this uh, I'm from the U.S. The U.S. has a real education problem. But we have the best schools in the world and the worst schools in the world. It's because of the way they're funded. We have 40,000 school districts that are funded by local property taxes. And so if you're in Palo Alto, you have really high taxes. You have great schools. If you're out in Mississippi, Alabama, Fresno, California, you have really low property taxes and really poor schools. And that's the U.S. problem. China has 40,000 school districts, just like the U.S., and they're, they're funded by local fiscal resources. Okay, number one. And so these local fiscal, these local counties have really tight fiscal budgets. And then they say, should I invest in rural schools? Should I invest in rural schools? And guess what? I take all this money and I invest in rural schools and I train all these kids to go to high school. I really have a good system and they all go to high school. Guess what? 93% of rural kids who get to high school level leave their county and never come back. Okay. And so the county officials, of course, know that. And so that's why the, the central government has to get into funding these schools. And they have to they have to do better teachers, health, nutrition, and just all around. And it has to start from the very first. Scott, you know, your book is really interesting and it goes across so many different areas of policy, but also intersects with you know, economics and what business can do, you know, to kind of help in this area. One, one final question, because I'm aware we're, we're getting tight on time, but I could talk about this with you for far longer. Based on your experience working with companies in your activities in rural China, you make mention of it in the book at several occasions. What do you think that companies can do to meaningfully help China address these challenges? Yeah, um, no, I'm, you know, we, when I first started, we had lots of international foundations, right? Lots of aid agencies from DFID, right? And the Germans and the Swedes and Canadians that provide a lot of funding. All that's gone now, right? And and probably rightly so, right? But the our our program is funded by individuals and companies. The the CSR, the corporate social responsibility arms of firms that are doing business in China, both Chinese firms and international firms. We have two or three that fund our work on babies. We have one that funds our work on educational technology. Uh, another one that funds our work on eyeglasses. They don't believe. I mean, they aren't doing it to. Earn money. They're doing it, I think, for two reasons. One is they're trying to give back a little, you know, to the people in China, right? Uh, that 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 
that are part of their business activities inside China. So they're doing it for public relations and 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 to, to give some back. And two is I think they really see it, especially now as a way that that the West and China can continue to cooperate. Uh, we're very lucky that we work with Chinese economists, Chinese medical doctors and teachers, and, and, and then we work with the government to try to upscale these things. So I think that those are the motives of those companies. Uh, that's our lifeline. Well, you know, thank you for joining us today. And I hope any of the companies out there listening you know, do get a copy of Scott's book, Invisible China. It's out now. It's a real eye-opener to a very aptly named Invisible China. Thanks, Scott, for joining us. Joseph, thank you. I, I really appreciate this, and I, I like your engagement, and um, I look forward to meeting you in Beijing. This is hopefully, hopefully. The China Business Brief is a podcast brought to you by the China Britain Business Council. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you're subscribed. To find out more about our other events and activities, do check out our website at www.cbbc.org.